Hi, this is Corey Olson, and welcome to Students of the Word. This podcast consists of recordings of the weekly Bible study I've started running in February of 2022. I'm doing close reading, uh, which means we're going very slowly, thinking really carefully about the words, how everything fits together, and then, of course, also thinking about what this means for us and what we do with it. Thanks for listening, and I pray that God will bless the reading of his word as we study together. Okay, welcome to episode 14. This comes in the middle of the very busy summer of 2022, in which I was traveling around all over the place, and so our meetings were un- have been, unfortunately, sporadic. However, in today's episode, we talked about the beginning of paragraph 3 of 1 John, uh, which I was very glad to get to. And in fact, I was so excited that we ended up powering through pretty much two whole verses. I know. Brace yourselves. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Students of the Word. This is session number 14, and today we are going to begin the third paragraph, uh, verse 3 of chapter 2. So I'm going to start with a little review uh, for uh, people who are following asynchronously. It it won't make any difference. Like you might perhaps have just finished listening to uh, session number 13 and be all ready for session 14. For those of us who are doing this in real time, uh, it's been like three weeks, four weeks uh, since our last session. Uh, So uh, I definitely want to do a little review. And besides, as we're getting back into um, paragraph three, it's good to keep an eye on the the big picture, right? Um, it's one of the things that's really important that you have to be armed against really carefully when you're doing this kind of close analysis is to make sure that we don't lose track of the big picture, right? That's easy to do when you're focused in on, you know, a chapter a week or a verse, a verse, a chapter a week, a verse a week. Um, but uh, we, um, we want to make sure that we're seeing, of course, how each verse fits into that paragraph that, you know, the idea of which it's a part. Um, and uh, that reminds me of a, a book I was just reading recently. Um, uh, pretty good book. I liked it. Oh, I didn't love everything about it, but I liked a lot about it. Um, uh, called How Not to Read the Bible. And one of his rules about how not to read the Bible, he says, never read a Bible verse. Uh, and I know exactly what he means. This The tendency that we have to want to find verses like as proof texts and things, and the way that you just always take things out of their context when you do that. Um, but anyway, so first we we want to understand each verse in the context of the paragraph. And then we um, we want to look at the overall shape of the argument, right? To keep track of where exactly he's going and how this all fits together. Because, and this is going to become something, I think we're going to have to be a little bit more elaborate with this as time goes on. I'm not sure how. I think we're going to need to map this visually a little bit as we move forward. Because um, unlike, say, Paul, for instance, who now Paul's arguments in his epistles are not exactly always linear, um, precisely, but, uh, but nevertheless, there's more of a sense of like, I'm building a cumulative argument, right? Um, and I'm not sure that John is building a cumulative argument in the same way that, um, you know, as I say, for instance, uh, Paul tends to do, um, so as we get deeper and deeper in, uh, you know, more and more paragraphs in, it's going to be more and more interesting to be trying to keep our eye on the big picture, right? Where is this in the, where is the overall flow of John's epistle headed, right? Um, but anyway, so let's do, 
Let's do a quick review. And since we're still early enough in the book that we can just read the whole thing again, that's what I want to start off doing. So first paragraph, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and handled with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So you will remember, we begin, right, at the very beginning. We're talking about what was from the beginning. And you'll remember the word of life stuff, right? From back in our first discussion there. Uh, <clears throat> and um, and the, with the emphasis on their experience of it, what they have heard, seen, gazed upon, handled, right? Con- about the word of life, you know, the word of life stuff. And the life was revealed, right? We've got the revelation, the parenthesis of revelation, right? The life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. So we've got the word of life and the eternal life. And it's interesting, we still haven't gotten back to that, right? John still hasn't returned to this question of the life. It sounds like that's what we were all focused on at first, didn't it? Right? The word of life stuff, we get the word of life, and the life was manifested. You know, the life is revealed, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. We've got life three times right there, right? Which seems to be this core idea um, you know, that, that life, eternal life was manifested and all these ways in which we've experienced the word of life, right? And yet we, he's not gone on explicitly. He hasn't brought up life again, life or the word of life. That's not yet, uh, that's not yet been a thing, um, explicitly yet. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. What we have seen and heard, again, of that word of life stuff, we proclaim to you also. And then, of course, you'll remember that sudden turn that uh, verse three takes so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So that instead of actually doing the proclaiming, he explains why um, uh, uh, he explains why he was proclaiming, right? Um, So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And that verse there in verse three, when he's saying what the purpose of the proclamation is, right? Why, essentially why he's writing the epistle is that it's all about the koinonia, right? The koinonia, the, the fellowship, the community with one another. And indeed, our koinonia, same word, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we've got our koinonia with the Father and with Jesus and our koinonia with each other. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And we were looking at how that seems to be like a summary restatement of verse three, right? Um, I'm going to, this is why we proclaim. This is these, this is why we write, right? You know, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete, thereby connecting this idea of fellowship, right? The fellowship with each other, the fellowship with the Father and with Jesus as being what the completion of joy looks like, right? All of that together. Then we get to the message, 
right? And this is the paragraph, this is the long paragraph that we've spent a lot of time on and which we just finished up last time, uh, going from verse five of chapter one through what is in our modern Bibles labeled verse two of chapter two. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So there's this, the, this central image, right? This is, this is the message. The message is God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So, um, you know, it's, here's, here's your metaphor. Right? which is uh, which is a little bit weird like in some ways right um weird that um uh weird that he the message is a metaphor right god is god is god is light um uh that's unexpected right that that is exactly what the message would be god is light and in him there is no darkness at all and we talked about that about god's purity um and the, the sort of the absolute nature of this claim, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the starting point, right? And, we, and he's going to, we're going to then talk about applying that in various ways, right? But he begins with that central idea, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, now we start the first of our five if statements, right? From verse six, all the way down through verse 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Quinonia again. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we do him to be a liar, right? We practice him to be a liar. Same word from verse six, you'll remember. We do him to be a liar and his word is not in us. So we got those five if statements in the middle, right? If we say this, but do this, right? If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, if our walk and our words do not match up, right? Then we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. We separate ourselves. We don't do the truth, right? The truth is a thing you can do. Um, Doing the truth is clearly uh, this uh, reconciliation, right? Between your actions and your words, right? When your actions match your words, you're doing the truth. You're not doing the truth if you say you have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. And as again, as we said, you go back to verse five and it's clear. It's simply impossible. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So you're just, you're not fooling anybody. Or I guess it's worse if you are, Um uh, whether that somebody be yourself or anybody else, um, but you're lying if you say that you are in fellowship. If you are in fellowship with Him and He is light, you 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 are in the light. You have you can only be walking in the light if you are in fellowship with Him. That's the, because He is light, and there in Him there is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, which we keep skimming. I, I keep skimming over that right? The importance of we have fellowship with one another there. And maybe I shouldn't. Maybe today is the day I should stop skimming over that. Um, 
if we say we have, um, sorry, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. We emphasized a lot at the beginning and end of that, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Um, that um, this is what happens when we stop walking in the darkness. Um, fellowship, the blood of Jesus, his son cleansing us from all sin which brings us into fellowship with God, into koinonia with God, real koinonia, the koinonia that in verse six, we were only claiming, but still walking in darkness, right? That the empty claim of fellowship with him. This is what reality of fellowship with him looks like, right? To have the blood of Jesus, his son cleansing us from all sin because we're walking in the light. So just as the light destroys the darkness, drives away all darkness. So, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, right? But in the middle of that, we have fellowship with one another. That is what happens when, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Um, and so again, just as we saw those two things, the fellowship with one another and the fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ, back in verse three. So here again, we see both of these things connected together. Right? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We have koinonia with God. We also have koinonia with each other. That is as inescapable a conclusion. And he puts it first, right? That's not just like a little bonus. Um, I, you know, we tend to focus on the blood of Jesus. We tend to focus on the salvation part, right? But that is not for John the primary thing right? The thing he puts first there is we have fellowship with one another, as if to emphasize the significance of that, right? We have fellowship with one another if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. It's not an add-on. It's a central feature of walking in the light. So we've had negative, right? If we say this, but you know, if, if our words and deeds don't match up, then we're lying and we're not doing the truth. But if we walk in the light, then we have the koinonia. If we say we have no sin, so now with the negative again, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, right? We're leading ourselves astray and the truth is not in us. So again, talking about our relationship with the truth, right? We're not doing the truth if we're saying one thing and doing the other. Um, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us if we say we have no sin. Right. So, and which seems to connect back to Jesus cleansing the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Right. If we don't think we need cleansing, right. If we think we're fine, this is, you know, again, through the parallelism, this seems to be another way of being like saying we have fellowship with him and yet walking in darkness. Right. Um, if you don't we think you have a problem. If you don't realize you're walking in darkness, if you're convinced you're not actually walking in darkness, then you're deceiving yourself. You're leading yourself away. And the truth is not in you. Um, by implication, the truth can be in you, right? It's not just a thing. It's not only a thing that you do. Truth, aletheia, isn't only a thing that you do. It's a thing that can be in you right now, it isn't in you in this case, right? If you deny your sin entirely, if you think you don't have any, you know, if, if again, if you're, if you believe you are cool, right. And uh, uh, nothing needs to happen for you to establish koinonia with God, right. Um, then 
the truth is not in you in that case. And again, you see the irony, right? If you think you're fine with God, the truth, right, is not in you. Um, the truth, which was clearly associated uh, with God, especially in uh, the Gospel of John. But anyway, then if we confess our sins, so once again, the positive thing, right? The positive thing, which is the reversal of verse eight. If we say we have no sin, but by, by contrast, if we confess our sins, right? And we remember we looked at sins plural versus sins singular, right? We confess our sins, all of our sins, like individually, like as they happen, right? Then he is faithful. Like that's where the faithfulness would seem to come in, would seem to point to that um, long term, repeated action over time, right? Um, God is not only righteous, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we looked at the importance of the parallel there, which is uh, submerged in the translation choices of many modern translations. Um, because of the way in which the the word the words righteousness and justice are both used um, to translate the same Greek word, basically, but it is the same word there. Um, the thing that Jesus has, right, that God has, righteousness, right, and what He's cleansing us from, unrighteousness, right, just the the reverse of that same thing. He is faithful and and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've got the cleansing, the repetition of the cleansing again, putting verse nine and verse seven into parallel there. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we looked at the parallels there. Um, again, once again, all English translations conceal this one because it really doesn't work in English, but in Greek it does. Um, and again, the word is the, is the word that's translated practice here by the NASB. We lie and do not practice, do not do the truth, right? We don't do the truth if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. If we say that we have not sinned, we do him a liar. Um, it's the same. It's the same where they were. We weren't practicing the truth here. We're practicing. We're doing him to be a liar, right? Which is, I think, clearly worse than what was happening before in his word is not in us, just like the truth was not in us there in verse eight. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, and so that this, his, my little children thing, right? Um, this little sort of rhetorical segue here um, seems to be a gesture towards kind of bringing these things together at the end right? Um, this little interposing, my little children, which gives, um, which shows affection, right? I think clearly shows affection, um, but um, uh, also puts him in a sort of the author in a paternal position to us, right? Um, he's sort of claiming, he's showing affection, but claiming authority at the same time there, right? I'm writing these things, these things to you so that you may not sin. That is such a charmingly straightforward sentence compared to the previous five sentences, right? And we can see where he was saying that, 
right? And we and we 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 discussed that as we all this stuff about walking in darkness and needing to walk in the light and um, uh, how we handle our relationship with sin, um, right? We 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 don't. Um, you know, we can't say that we don't sin. We certainly can't say that we've never sinned. Uh, what we should say instead is what we do sin to like say concretely to make confession, right? So we've got these three different things about what we might say about our sins, right? And we've got the two references to Jesus cleansing us, cleansing us from all sin, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So what? where does it all where does it all leave us? Well, this is where he shows us, right? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't, don't sin, right? This it's so that you might not sin that I write this, stop it. And if anyone sins, right? So at the, you know, this, and it's just delightful, right? Clearly the, the implication of verses five through 10 is stop sinning. If you're sinning, if you're walking in darkness, if you're not practicing the truth, right? Um, uh, you are, um, you're not in koinonia with God because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We talked about how you can't bring darkness into the presence of light, right? If you do, it will be destroyed. And we were making some connections back to uh, John chapter one and the, the darkness and light metaphors there, right. Um, About how, uh, you know, the world lives in darkness and doesn't want to come into the light, right. Um, Because its own works are evil. Um, But if you walk in the light, then if you are in koinonia with God, then the darkness is cleansed, right. It's removed by the light. It's completely removed. Um, just as we get that complete cleansing um, repetition there in verse seven and in verse nine. Um, but there's, al- there's also this recognition repeated in eight, nine, and 10. Don't misunderstand. Sin is relevant to you. Right. So there's, they're both halves of this paradox. Sin is relevant to you. You can't say you don't sin. You can't say you're not going to sin. You can't say you've never sinned. Right. Instead, like face it, you sin, confess your sins. Right. Um, and yet he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation. He's the advocate, the comforter, the supporter, right? The one who comes beside us uh, to help us if we sin. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, praise. I think that's true that, you know, a major reason the church is often accused of hypocrisy uh, is because the sin is hidden instead of confessed. Um, yeah, yeah. Confession is important, right? I mean, there is a strong desire to conceal sin, right, from everyone, um, from yourself, right? To even admit that something you did was a sin to yourself, right? To confess it privately to God, to confess it to somebody else, right? Um, uh, 
you know, whether it be in a more structured context like Catholic confection, confession or whether confection, that's a totally different thing, uh, Catholic confession or whether it be, um, you know, in a more informal context uh, in the, in some, within some other tradition um, or even publicly to confess, right? Um, there's a, there are great inhibitions against this, right? But I agree, praise, at the end of the day, um, that's about pride, isn't it? Um, and I think that we have to be very cautious about that kind of reluctance, right? Um, that reluctance to confess. It's true. Yeah, praise adds the term sinner is considered an insult instead of humble acknowledgement. Um, yeah, yeah, often, right? Um, but um, but again, the balance here, right? Don't forget, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He speaks like that's an option, right? Um, and that's, I think, a really important thing. I, one of the things that I see in this whole passage, in this whole second paragraph, um, is a... Uh, a teaching that strikes directly against what I see as a very common modern trend, which is uh, to basically take the initial confession, right? Uh, Like the confession of conversion to say, I am a sinner and I need the grace of God. Um, And to keep praying that same prayer as if from the same place for the rest of one's life, right? Uh, To keep talking about oneself as if one is still in the same place that one was uh, prior to being saved by grace, right? Prior to uh, entering into the koinonia um, of the Father. And I think that John is pretty clear. It's not only that that doesn't happen, that cannot happen, right? If you are in koinonia with God, by definition, there's not going to be any darkness in you because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Um, And again, he's very clear, cleansed from all sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's real. That's real. Um, And if you make with the confession, you get right straight back to that, right? Um, Anyway, yeah, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? Live in koinonia with God and with each other. At the end of the day, that's the heart of all the law and the, and the, and the prophets, right? Um, and that seems to be what John is, and what John is looking at here is, what does that look like, right? Can we think through? what that means, right? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And immediately, like, I know, I know, yes, like, it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. And that's okay. It's not the end of the world, right? Um, Because he is the, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. So it's all right, right? Um, But where we are supposed to be is walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Whenever we are in fellowship with God and we're meant to be, 
right? This is not a pie in the sky thing. This is not a when I die and go to heaven thing, right? We are meant to be in koinonia with God. Um, this, the kind of, um, I don't know, uncertainty. There's a potential uncertainty that's created, um, I think, by this whole situation, right? Um, like, okay, I say I have koinonia with God. Am I? But 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 am I walking in darkness? Right? Am I deceiving myself? Am I fooling myself? Right? Is this? Is this? Where am I really? Right? And that's where he segues to after this. So now we finally begin our second paragraph. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. By this we know that we have come to know Him. So. Our next step here, right? First sentence of our third paragraph is about knowledge of knowledge, right? We know him, right? That's the koinonia, right? That intimacy of knowledge. Um, and this word, this is an important word. Um, so important that I, I've added it to our word list here. Gnosko, uh, to know. Um, this is going to come up a lot. John uses this word a lot in the rest. This is the first time he's used it. It will come up many, 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 many times uh, in the rest of this epistle. Um, We know God. Our knowledge of God, I think it's, it's very clear that it's very clear that he's talking about that koinonia that he's been discussing, that intimacy, that relationship with God. Um, uh, I say intimacy, um, that word to know here is the same word that's used when uh, we're talking about when Joseph does or does not know his wife uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the word know, it's used many, many times. Um, uh, and the general trend does seem to be that sort of implicit intimacy. This is not just head knowledge that we're talking about. This is full experiential knowledge of something, um, not just intellectual information about. Um, but yeah, like that's literally the, the Joseph knowing, uh, you know, uh, when Joseph does or does not know his wife uh, is the, literally the first time that uh, verb is used uh, in the New Testament. Um, okay, so by this we know that we have come to know him. So what he so you've got the, the the premise of the thing is our knowledge of God, right? That intimacy of relationship with God. But then he is answer, addressing the question, but how do we know when we know? Right? How can we understand? And you might think, my first theory, when I when I when I read this the first time in English, uh, well, not the first time, when I was thinking about this in English, I was like, huh. I wonder if those are two different verbs for no, because, you know, sometimes there are those two different, there are many languages that have this distinction, right? Between intellectual comprehension on the one hand and experiential knowledge on the other hand, right? Um, And I was wondering, I'm like, is this like a head knowledge? Like by this, we intellectually comprehend that we have come to experientially know him. And the answer is 
No, <laughs> it's not, right? There's something weird happening here that I don't get. It's a John-ism, again, like, just like with the word propitiation, right, which we were talking about, which John uses that word that way, and almost nobody else does. Um, it's another one of those here. But anyway, uh, so we go back, we go to our Greek here. And by this, we know Ginoskomen. So this is the uh, present third person plural or first person plural. So we're, we're we again, right? Um, but this is present indicative, right? So that's present indicative, active, active. That's just regular present tense, right? By this, so we know that common, which at first looks like a different word. Right. And you could be forgiven by, for looking at these two things and being like, ah, oh, two different forms of the verb. No, it's actually not. Well, there's, it's, it's, this is the same word. So like it's, the, this, it's the same core verb in both places. Um, Gnosko. Um, this form with the eh at the beginning, egg, eggnok, and then it, you, you lose the S there. Um, this is a, an alternate form. There's something, happening here that I don't, uh, I don't understand. Maybe people who know Greek could explain it to me, what it is that he's doing to the verb here. You'll notice that our transliteration here, as well as the NASB, has emphasized a different sense of the verb, right? It's not a different, it's not a radically different tense. This is perfect. It is, okay, all right, it's a different tense, but it's not a radically different form. It's this perfect indicative active, whereas this one is present indicative active. So um, uh, what does that mean? Perfect tense versus present tense. Present tense is describing present action. Um, how do we know this, right? Um, how do we know that we have known him uh, would be the way that I would pronounce, like just taking those two tenses, the way that I would render those in English is how do we know present that we have known him present perfect. Um, that's how I would, that's how, that's the simplest way that I would render those things. The have come to know him. I, so I, I believe that the come to in the middle of this, which again, the interlinear uses and also the NASB uses um, uh, that we have come to know him is I believe their rendering of what the E at the, what the little prefix that he's added to this verse means. Let's take a little survey through. Let's, let's look here. Okay. So in the King James and hereby, do we know that we know him? So they don't distinguish between the two verb forms. Um, interestingly, the King James doesn't distinguish between the tenses either. They make them both sound present, right? And hereby, do we know that we know? Um, NIV, we know that we have come to know him. Um, I like what I, one of the things that I like about the, this, again, like the interlinear, have come is, that's present perfect, right? So they're rendering the tense there. So the NIV agrees with the NASB and uh, the interlinear there. By this, we may be sure that we know him. Okay, so the NRSV ditches the first no entirely and replaces it with be sure of, right? Um, so I'm not a huge fan because it, it loses the parallel, like the fact that the same core verb is at use there. Um, and, but, uh, um, and it just renders the second one as present 
tense, basically. We don't get any of the alteration there. Um, CEV says, when we obey God, oh, that's the second half of this verse. I'm like, wait, wait, where did that come from? Okay, sorry, the commandments. Interesting. Yeah, ditches the commandments entirely. Oh, we'll get to that. We are sure we know him. That's the critical phrase here we're talking about. We are sure we know him again. They just, that's just like the NRSV. Um, and apart from the fact that it's suppressing the two no's, uh, it's rendering it like the King James does. We are sure we know him. Present, present. And then, oh, how do we how to do it in the message? Here's how we can be sure that we know God in the right way. In the right way. See, that's a pure addition. Pure addition. And I'm not saying it's totally inappropriate, but as always, that's only one way of understanding that phrase. Um, Okay. Be sure that we know God, though. But a fu- fundamentally, from a verb structure way, they're doing the same thing they, that the others do. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm going to accept um, on authority of these translators that this idea we have come to know um, is some kind of rendering. I'm going to look at this though. We're, we're going to trace this because we'll see the egno common um, in other places in first John, right? When he uses the Gnosko verb, he uses both the form with the E prefix and without the E prefix. He uses both forms multiple times through the rest of the book. So it will be lots of fun for us to see what patterns begin to emerge um, as we look at those, as we go on. But fundamentally, um, uh, um, but fundamentally, um, Devorah, yeah, they are the same. This is, these are not like, um, this is not like, you know, connaître and savoir from French, right? These are not like two, the two totally different words for no. These are just two different forms of the same, of the same verb. Um, but yeah, Devorah, yeah, Devorah says, I can see why you might not want to use have known because it might imply that we used to know him, but now we don't. Um, yes, uh, it is a dangerous, so the present perfect, right? The present perfect means an action which in the present tense is complete. Right, an action which has been completed, that is completed as of now. Like it's, you're like declaring the action complete, right? Um, and of course, there are two different ways in which you could understand the completion of that action in the present tense of or just as you say, right? You could see it as like, so we have known him, and now it's over, <laughs> right? The knowledge is done, right? It's it's been it's been you know you can check that off. We can check that box and now it's time to move on, right? And that would, I think, I would hazard not be the right way to understand the present in this case, but rather um, to say instead, like the fullness of knowledge doesn't actually mean that you're done, right? Um, It just means the process of coming to know something is done, right? Doesn't mean you forget it. It doesn't mean you don't know it anymore, right? Uh, In fact, to the contrary, it means that like now, you can enjoy the knowledge of that thoroughly. It's almost as if, Devorah, right, that like now your joy can be full, can be complete, right? That idea of the completion of joy that we got in chapter one, verse five, um, 
seems to me to be a thing that's like implicit in the use of the perfect tense there in that second knowledge, right? Um, we have known him. The, no, the knowing of him is come to its completion, right? We are in koinonia with him. And again, like that's just a mind-blowing thing all by itself, isn't it? Right. Um, you know, of course, there's still some of the, um, you know, that which will be and that which is right now kind of situation here. Right. This isn't to necessarily say that the relationship we have with God now is the ultimate form that it will ever be, that there is no room for improvement yet that, you know, you know, that's not to say this is a contradiction, in other words, of Paul's assertion that at some point we shall know even as we are known, right? Um, uh, however, John insists that the koinonia is real, right? The fellowship between us and God is real. Um, we are, we walk in the light as he is in the light, right? Just as he is in the light, so can we be in the light, right? And if we are in the light, if we are in koinonia with God, then uh, we are cleansed of all sin, right? Um, Then there's no darkness at all in us, right? When we are in koinonia with God. So he's using some pretty absolute terms here. Um, And that's been pretty, so I think we can't shy away from that. And again, that's why I think, based on the patterns that we've been seeing in the first two paragraphs, that's why my reading, Devorah, of the perfect tense there is that, um, and I, I wonder if that's also why he's using that other form of that verb, that we have, if come to is a good um, um, uh if come to is a good translation of that, which again, I, I trust because I certainly don't know any better myself. Um, then what he's pointing to is the completion of that process. Right. And again, think about that process that would seem to me to fit perfectly well with what we've seen. Remember, remember the progression we were looking at, right? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, seen with our eyes, gazed upon, handled with our hands, right? The, 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 sort of trajectory of increasing intimacy, right? Of increasing depth of knowledge there. Um, That would seem to fit with this idea of we have come to know him. The coming to know him is that's the thing that's done for it. It's not the knowing him that's done. It's the coming to know him that's done, right? And again, the implication of that, we know God now. We are in fellowship with God. We know him and he knows us. We are in this mutual fellowship together. Um, and that's pretty amazing. Again, I know I feel very strongly myself, the impulse to, to, to qualify that, right. To be like, you know, maybe not like perfectly. John does not seem to feel the impulse to qualify this. He's, he's kept repeating this. Um, and so I don't want to back down from what he's saying. Um, he, he says that he wants our joy to be complete. And he says that as if he's not talking about the hereafter, right? As if he's talking about now, 
right? Um, you know, we've been talking about how the implication from paragraph one seems to be that he's talking about um, what comes next, right? Um, you know, Jesus has come. Jesus has risen. Um, now what, right? Now what? Um, well, in that state of now what, right? Um, before Jesus's return, but after his ascension in this time right now, he's still going to use phrases like that your joy may be complete, complete, finished, perfected, um, that your cup may be filled up entirely. Um, just as he will say things like, my little children, I write these things unto you so that you may not sin, right? Um, no qualification, no beating around the bush that you may sin. He doesn't say, I write these things to you so that you may sin less, right? Uh, so that you may sin less grievously, right? Uh, so that you may begin the long pathway towards purification, right? He, that's not how he talks, right? So that you may not sin so that your joy may be complete. We have come to know him. Um, our knowledge of him has reached completion, just as our joy can reach completion. But how do we know? Um, how do we know? We know that we have come to know him. By this we understand, present tense. By this, we have full, intimate, intuitive understanding that we have come to know him. So we start with that kind of core idea. We have come to know him. We have gained this intimacy and familiarity with God, the koinonia with God. But the question is, how do we know it? How do we know that we have that? How can we be sure? And remember how relevant this is to what he, to all the if clauses he was just doing, right? If we say we have fellowship with God, but then our actions are like this, right? So, um, okay. So how can we know then? How can we, how can we, I mean, it might make you, think twice about saying anything about it, right? Um, because, you know, you might not be doing the truth. So how can you know? How can you know? And he has a simple answer to this. By this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. That's it. It's really simple. You're keeping his commandments? Do you, are, are you in fellowship with God? Do you know you're in fellowship with God? How can you know? Well, simple. Simple test. The test of obedience, right? Um, look at these words, because these are going to come up. I didn't put them on the list yet. Um, but I think that both of these words are eventually going to make it onto the list. If the entolas commandments and tolas of him we should keep teromen 
um, this is an important word to, um, yeah, to, to, to guard, to preserve, right? If we keep, it's not just, so you don't obey a commandment. You obey a person, right? You keep a commandment. Are we keeping his commandments? And it's interesting, isn't it, that he emphasizes it that way? I mean, he could have said, in fact, it would even seem, frankly, a little bit more straightforward for him to have not that that's ever stopped John before. Um, but it would be a little bit more straightforward for him to say, by this, we know that we know him. By this, we know that we have come to know him. If we obey it. Right. That that would like the parallel there would be really clear. You know, do you know him? Well, are you obeying him? Right. That would seem like a sensible, and, and that's it fits. Like I'm not saying that's that he says something that contradicts that, right? But he doesn't say it that way, right? Instead of following through on that kind of parallel structure, right? Do you know him? Well, do you obey him? If the answer is yes to one, it's yes to the other, right? And again, that's what he's saying, right? He's talking about his commandments. Are we keep? Are you keeping his commandments? Um, in a sense that, of course, that's just like another way of saying, are you obeying him? But what's the difference? What's the difference? If the commandments of if we should keep his commandments, this is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. Um the emphasis, I think, the shift in emphasis from are you obeying him to we're keeping his commandments is specific attention to what he's told us to do, right? Again, you obey a person, you keep a commandment. Um, we should, we are indeed meant to have general obedience to God right? Whatsoever he commands, we are to do. But um, when you say, keep the commandments of him, shows this is not just like an attitude. These are about specific actions, right? An attitude of obedience, a willingness to obey, right? I am prepared to obey at any point. Um, That's a good thing. But that can also, there are ways in which that can almost be evasive, right? Just give me a command and I will go. Um, You have commands. You've been given commands, right? Let's stay focused on the commandments that have been given, right? Um, So demonstrate your attitude of obedience by actually following the commandments, right? And again, we can see how this is an extension of what he was just saying at the end of the previous paragraph, right? I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, let me say that again another way. Demonstrate that you know God, right? Prove to yourself and P.S. to everybody else that you know him by keeping his commandments, 
right? Not sinning on the one hand and keeping his commandments. Now, those are not the same thing, right? But they are complementary to each other, <laughs> right? Uh, certainly, if you're sinning, you're not keeping his commandments. And presumably, if you're keeping his commandments, you're not sinning, right? I'm not saying you can't kind of do both, right? It's the, They're not identical. Um, there's like some 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 you know there are definitely scenarios in which you can be keeping his commandments and also sinning right in different ways or whatever like depending on the commandments in question right um but um uh but this is very this is very practical divorce says i can find a loophole if i try hard enough exactly um yeah stephen says keeping commandments also strikes me as showing understanding and taking them to heart as opposed to just obeying in some blind unthinking way um yeah yeah i i mean i think th- there's more like application uh to it in that sense um yeah stephen says in some ways the pharisees were pretty good at obeying without keeping commandments yeah, yeah, the Pharisees are a good example of why, like, an obedient attitude is not necessarily enough, like, because there's a lot of opportunity for misapplication there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if we keep his commandments. So, once again, John brings this back to what we do. And this has been persistent, right? Um, If we say we have fellowship with him, if we claim knowledge of God, right? We claim intimacy with God and yet walk in the darkness, right? Um, If our our actions and our proclamation don't match up, it's the action which demonstrates where we really are. Right. It doesn't lead us away. It's not it's not about like if we say we have fellowship with him and then walk in darkness. Well, now we're in trouble. Right. Um, The walking in darkness shows the reality. We don't actually have fellowship with him if we're walking in darkness. Again, we can't because God is light and in him is no darkness. So as we talked about before, if you want to walk in darkness, you got to find darkness that's away from you. You have to leave God first. Right. You cannot be in in fellowship with him and walking in darkness at the same time, not possible, right? Um, but if we walk in the light. So again, we've got the talking about our walking there. Um, and then he comes back to, again, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Um, if we keep his commandments, very practical, right? Very. It's about our actions. This is how we know that we've come to know him. Are you walking in the light? Right? And notice how he's shifting. He's shifted in a sense away from that metaphor. Now, I'm not saying he's abandoning that way of thinking, but he's no longer appealing to that metaphor, right? Walking in the darkness, walking in the light, those were appealing to the overall metaphor of God is light and in him is no darkness at all that he began that paragraph with. Sort of, you know, that that metaphor establishes the whole theme for that paragraph, right? And he's not using in this second, in this third paragraph, he's no longer invoking that metaphor directly, right? Um, By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, notice there's an obvious question that, 
leaps to mind <laughs> from verse three, right? Um, so, um, what are his commandments, <laughs> right? Um, uh, that's clearly the obvious. So, okay, um, which commandments are we supposed to keep in order to know that we have come to know him, right? Um, can I have a, a clear list of the commandments that I'm supposed to keep so that I can know, right? Now we're going to get that. Um, he's going to come. This is why we need to, we need to keep an eye out for the word and tolos here commandments uh, as he's going to come back and, and bring this up. And also this idea of keeping um, in the sense in which he's talking about keeping the commandments. We'll get a lot more context for what he means by this verb and we'll get, substantially more clarity as to what are the commandments that he is talking about. Um, And I will give you a hint. Commandments is plural. This is a plural noun. And when you hear the word commandments in the plural, it might make you think of the 10 commandments. It might start making you think of the law, right? I don't know. Like plural commandments makes me think of a list, right? Like, okay, something I'm going to have to memorize. Um, what we'll see is that entolas is plural in only the most technical sense. Um, that is to say there are two commandments that he's talking about here. Um, and he's going to explain that. He's going to say that explicitly several times later on in the book. Um, uh, the, to do the spoiler thing, at this point, um, the um, the commandments is he is modeling off of Jesus's teaching about love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Right, those are the two commandments. So it's technically they are commandments. There is more than one of them. Right, um, but um, although it might at this point sound like it could be a longish list. In the end, John does not point to a long list, right? Um, okay, uh, let's let's glance ahead. Verse three, short. So let's. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, "Great, I've given away the shocking twist." It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, the um, uh, the the you know the heart of the law and the prophets. Yeah, I did just kind of spill the beans on that one, um, but. Um, Okay, let's peek ahead at verse four. Verse three was short. Let's peek ahead at verse four and see where we're coming. There's a lot in verse four, right? Verse four is, is uh, verse four and five. Is there's a good deal there? Um, the one who says, "I have come to know him," and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, um, notice that this has the shape of phrases people have had 2000 years to discover on, on their own, what Jesus says are the primary commandments. Uh, So it's true. People don't have too much ground to complain about spoilers. You're right about that. Um, Anyway. Okay. Notice the overall shape here should sound familiar, right? Um, If one says this and does this, then is a liar. And the truth is not in him, right? That that pattern sounds very much like verse six, right? 
um, a little bit like verse 8, a little bit like verse 10, we've seen this structure before, right? Um, let's glance for just a second. Notice that we don't start with if here. The one saying. Um, so we start with a neuter, right? No, nominative. No, it's masculine. It's not neuter. It's nominative masculine single, singular. That one, right? Um, and so that is a change. If we go back to chapter one and we go down, remember these were explicitly if clauses, right? If we should say verse six, um, if so the, the, the aeon, if starts all of these verses, right? Six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, all starting with the word aeon, right? That if, that explicit if conjunction to give us that if-then shape that we were talking about all through there. So he's varying his syntax here, right? Um, he does not, um, notice, by the way, where he brought that if back at the end, right? Um, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? Love that. But anyway, okay. Um, he doesn't start off with that same structure. The one who says, I have come to know him. And that's going to be our same verb, right? Let's check it out there. Verse four. Uh, yes. Egnoka. There we go. So we've got the gno, uh, the gnoch, um, you know, the gnosko root verb root there, but with that E prefix again, just like we had um so the one who says i've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him so we see on the one hand this is a simple doubling down on what he just said in verse three how do you know that you know him how do you know that you have come to know him how do you know that you are in koinonia with god if you keep his commandments, if you keep his commandments, then you know. You have intimate knowledge of your own intimacy with God. Somebody who says, who affirms that knowledge, almost exactly like verse six, right? If you say you have fellowship with God, if you say, I have come to know him but you don't keep his commandments. And I believe we've got the same words there too, right? And tolos, yes. Keeping, teron, yep, same verb, teromen. Um, that's first person plural, we should keep. Um, yeah, of course, that's subjunctive because this is an if clause, right? Um, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, right? Um, so that second is subjunctive. It's like conditional, right? Should we keep his commandments? Then we will know. Then we know that we come to know. You could restructure this to, as an if clause, right? If we keep his commandments, then we know that we have come to know him, right? Would be another way of framing it. It's so that the if we keep his commandments is subjunctive in that same, for that same reason, as it would seem to me. Um, but right. The one saying I have known him, 
and the commandments of him not keeping, right? So this one, right, we've got a, uh, is that a preposition, present participle? Yeah, present participle. It's an active present par- partic- participle, um, right? He's a liar. He's a sustes, just like we had before. And the truth, the aletheia, is not in him. Um, okay. The one who says, I have come to know him. Let's look at tenses there too. Verse four, the one saying, I have known him. Interestingly, the interlinear doesn't do the come to here, even though the form is clearly the same. But this is first person, active, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The one who says, I have come to know him. And I think I agree with the NASB here. The one who says, I have come to know him, showing the exact parallel here, right? Um, same tense even, right? I have reached the completion of coming to know him, right? I have attained koinonia with God. The generic person saying this and also does not not keeping the commandments. Oh, hang on a second. Um, and the commandments of him not keeping. Ah, I see. Okay. So I'm looking at the syntax in the Greek. Um, interesting. Okay. So the NASB has not represented this. The one saying this and not keeping that. Okay. So do you see how that works? Um, So we start with this like article, which is sort of standing in like a pronoun, right? That one, right? This person. And then you have two participles. Now participles um, can act as adjectives or nouns or something. In this case, I think it's clearly an adjective, right? The one, which one? The person who, and there are two participial clauses. The person on the one hand saying this thing and not keeping that other thing, right? Those, those are both participial phrases that, that describe the one, right? So the one for whom these two descriptors are both true, right? The one person who is simultaneously saying this thing over here and not doing this other thing over here, right? When those two clauses both modify the same theoretical person, this one, then what happens? Then we get our main subject and verb. He is a liar, right? When one is saying this and is not doing that, he is a liar. Um, and the difference here is that in the, in the NASB, um, they've tried to make the whole thing one, one subject, right? They say the one who says and does not keep is a liar, right? So they've made the one, that little pronoun at the beginning of the sentence, they've made that into... Um, the subject of the verb is, right? 
Whereas in the Greek, it looks like it's, um, it's a restatement of it. The one is a liar. Well, I mean, you could argue for it. It's still pretty witty, pretty literal translation. Um, they've lost the present participle. They've not done the present participle thing. I think it's a little queer the way they've translated it. Um, but I like the present participles. Um, the thing that you get from the present participle, the one saying this and not keeping that, right? Those two parallel present participles. Um, it's a state of being that is currently going on, right? In both cases. Um, the one who is in these, in, in the state of doing both of these things, of saying this and of not keeping that, that person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let's go back and do a quick comparison. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's just like things that were said, but I don't think that was ever said in those words. In verse six, we had, we lie and do not practice the truth. In eight, we have, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we had the truth not in us there. Um, and then we had, we make him a liar. So this is a fourth and still slightly different combination of those same things. The person who says this is a liar and the truth is not in him. Um, the truth is not in him now in the context of what we've had in paragraph two seems much more clearly to me to be a statement, like a repetition of the, like koinonia is not happening, right? Koinonia is not, the truth is not in you. You are not in fellowship with God, right? Um, you can't, koinonia just it gives like another glimpse of that same thing, right? Just as you can't be, in the light and in the darkness at the same time, right? You cannot be in communion with God and community with God and koinonia with God and the, have the truth not be in you, right? That's what it means for the truth to be in you. The idea of this thing being inside you, right? That you being filled with the truth um, uh, is tied so closely to that idea of fellowship, of community with God, right? And when you're a liar, right? If you are a liar, um, I don't think I wanna to put too much pressure on the difference between being a liar and lying, right? Um, the one thing that I will say about that is that the way that it seems to fit the structure of this, right? If you say you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, you lie, right? So every time you say that, you lie, right? But it's it, to me, it comes back to the present participles, right? The one who say, is, you know, saying this 
and is not keeping the commandments is a liar. Like one who has that as an ongoing state, right? Um, has not just told a lie, but is a liar. Um, if there is this fundamental disjunction, right? If you say that you know God, that you have come to know God, that you are in fellowship with God and you don't keep his commandments, then you are a liar. Lying is now what you really are. It's part of your identity. It's not part of, like, it is your identity. And why? Because the truth is not in you. Just as obviously the truth can't be in you if you are a liar any more than, you know, you can walk in darkness if you're in the light. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is how fundamental keeping his commandments is. It is not just the natural, it's the inescapable expression. So inescapable that it's not possible to be in community with God and not to keep his commandments. Obedience. I think that obedience of God is something that we don't emphasize enough uh, these days. Um, But John's making a pretty big deal of this here. If we keep his commandments, we can know. If you say that you are in communion with God, that you have koinonia with God, if you say that you have come to know God and you don't keep his commandments, then you're, you're just, you're a liar. Um, what do we tend to think about when we think about being in communion, in communion with God, in fellowship with God, right? What do we tend to think that means, that that looks like? What he's telling us, what it has to look like. It has to look like keeping God's commandments, which, spoilers, means loving God and loving other people. If we are not defined by love, if we are not keeping love and keeping ourselves in love, then we're liars and the truth is not in us. Strong language from John here, as so often the case. Um, we will um, we'll move on. Next time we'll do verse five. Hey, who knows? Maybe we'll do this whole paragraph in two sessions. I doubt it. We'll see. Um, but um, yeah, there's a lot here. I think I'll be reflecting some more on some of these things as we move forward. Um, but uh, you can see in these two verses where he's really hammering on this one point, right? On the, this identification between knowing God, being in fellowship with God and keeping his commandments. Um, I'm glad that we discussed these together. All right. Um, I'm gonna, uh, that'll be, that'll be all for this week. Next time. Um, We're gonna, 
see how he continues to to emphasize this um and he's going to bring back some of the other languages that we've seen um uh, so he's going to be connecting back more uh to that second uh paragraph in a lot of ways this paragraph feels like um an extension right like a like a a sort of a further application further thinking through the same things i think that he was thinking about there in the second paragraph um well thanks everybody uh for your discussion here today um and i look forward to moving on to verse five and who knows maybe verse six next time thanks everybody okay that's it for this week i'll be back with another episode soon as we continue our march through first john I'm glad you could join me. Godspeed.